Listen, y'all, we have uh, increased by four degrees just since we started worship. I mean, there's something to that. I mean, give the Lord a hand of praise, right? That's powerful worship. When, you, when, when your worship brings the heat up, you know, you know something's going on, right? Amen. Well, listen, uh, like, the, the, like the announcement said, I want to encourage you, uh, in, case you don't, in case you're like me and you just check out during announcements, uh, we do have next steps and small groups getting ready to launch again here in the first week of February. And, and so if you've not done that, please go ahead and sign up for small groups. And then if, if all, next steps also, if that's what you'd like to check out. Uh, but, but small groups specifically. And we always encourage people, man, like if you're hesitant about small groups, here's the thing. Sign up. Try one out. If you hate it the first week, you can quit. You know what I'm saying? Like, but just try it out because well, that's, that's, that's one of the ways that we believe we make disciples. We build relationships and we grow as a church. It's an important ministry here in our church. So I would encourage you, even though you may be hesitant about it, please consider signing up for a small group and getting involved. Uh, you can go online, cityofhopechurch.org and click connect and you can uh, fill it out there or you can go to our uh, Facebook page and find a link as well there but uh, I'd encourage you to do that now let's let's get in here into the word uh, I'm, I'm going to start in Psalm 105 and I started a sermon series last week called the pursuit and I've discussed the concept before that I'm going to talk about this morning uh, in a worship night sometime back. But sometimes when I, when I preach messages, I have like a, a thought that honestly a sermon, I, it just doesn't get out of my spirit. You know what I mean? I'm processing it and I'm thinking about it. And, I, and so I want to share this word with you again. Maybe you remember some of it, maybe you don't. But I want to talk about the days of Saul specifically this morning. And I want to begin with Psalm 105 verses 1 through 4. And of course, this is, uh, this is David writing this, and he says this, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works, glory in his holy name, let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength, seek his presence continually, remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. <clears throat> Let's pray this. Let's pray over this word this morning. Father, we thank you so much once again for your word. We believe that your word is living and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. God, it pierces to the dividing asunder the spirit and soul and the joints and the marrow. And it discerns the very thoughts and intents of our heart. And so we pray that your word would come this morning. And it would stoke a fire in our hearts, Lord Jesus, to pursue you, even as David did, to be men and women after your own heart. God, we pray that you do that in us, in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we, we, we come up with that phrase last week, God moves where God is pursued. And I believe that's, a, that's an absolute reality. I believe that God is a God who desires to be sought after. He says, seek and you find, knock and the door will be opened, ask and you shall receive. And every place in history where you see God, see people seeking God radically, that's where you see God moving in miraculous ways. When people are lukewarm, obviously you don't see God moving that often. He doesn't tend to move among people who aren't seekers. But when people's hearts are stirred and they realize, even in Scripture, 
Scripture, it's very interesting. Because when you see prophecy being fulfilled throughout Scripture, it's not just fulfilled on a whim usually. What you see is people going to the Scripture, seeing that God has prophesied this Word, and that Word stirring their hearts to begin to pray and to begin to fast and to seek God. And then He uses those people who are stirred to seek Him to bring about fulfillment of that prophecy and spiritual breakthrough in that time and in that place. So God doesn't just prophesy and then say, I'm going to do this, this is going to happen, and not require anything out of his people. He's always saying, this is going to happen, but I want you to participate with me in it. I want you to become seekers, and I want you to contend for the promises of God to happen in the here and now on earth as it is in heaven. And so David understood this, and he knew that if, if, if you wanted God to be in your midst, then you had to seek him. And his life was built around the reality of God. And I don't know if you read the Psalms very often. Honestly, even when I just read in Psalm 105, you can read those and you'll be like, dude, he's just saying a lot of weird stuff. It's almost like he's just saying stuff to like write some stuff down. Seek the Lord, praise his name, sing glory unto him. Like, and, but here's the thing. When he's saying these things, these things are important. And I read that this week and I broke it down verse by verse. And I went through the fact that in just four verses, he listed ten specific things in order to reorient our hearts and our lives toward God. Because I don't know if you realize this or not, but if you spend a week at work, you spend a week around some negative people, you spend a week just spending you know, three hours watching TV at night, can I tell you this? The world will tune you to reorient your heart away from God. And all of a sudden you realize, you don't, maybe you don't realize it, that you've become dull, you've become lukewarm, and your heart's not thinking about God, you're not talking about God, you don't have a song on your lips toward God, your heart's not stirred, you're not desiring God. And so David is constantly writing psalms and reminding himself and the people around him, hey, stir your heart toward God, let's lift up a song. Glory in His holy name, think about His marvelous deeds and tell somebody else about them. And he lists these specifically, he says, number one, you can put the those verses back up there give thanks to the Lord why because he knows that we enter into his gates with thanksgiving he understands that if you learn how to give thanks to the Lord there's actually a gate that is opened in the realm of the spirit that gives you access into greater dimensions of who God is then he says call upon his name because he knows that when you call upon the name of the Lord he responds and his name is his character it's his nature Jesus the name of Jesus Jesus is Yahweh is salvation. That means He saves, He sets free, He delivers. He is Jehovah Jireh, the Lord our provider. He is Jehovah Rapha, the Lord our healer. He's Jehovah Sitkanu, the Lord our righteousness. And when you call upon His name, it grants Him access to be that in our midst. He says, make known His deeds among the peoples. Why? Because when God does something for you, you need to tell somebody else because it stirs faith in their heart for God to do it for them. Then He says, sing to him sing praises to his name why because David understands and knows and even wrote that God inhabits the praises of his people you know where God dwells he dwells where people are praising him amen and then he says tell of all his wondrous works in other words create a culture where people believe God is able to do the miraculous Tell of all of the wondrous works that God has done. And then he says, glory in his holy name. In other words, saturate yourself in the holiness and in the purity and in the goodness of God. Let your heart rejoice 
who seek the Lord. And here's, here's the reality. I don't know if you felt it this week. I don't know how well you've been seeking the Lord. Everybody told me that staying at home affected the way that they sought the Lord. And I'm thinking, man, you know, it's like, it's like if we stay at home, people will say, well, it's, you know, being at home affected the way I sought the Lord. If you'd been at work, you'd have said being at work affected the way you sought the Lord. Sometimes you've got to stir yourself up to seek the Lord in uncomfortable and difficult situations. Amen. Y'all ain't amen to me this morning. Maybe too cold for you. But I know this, when I seek the Lord, when I pray, when I fast, when I set my heart to seek the Lord, my flesh resists it, but I've never gotten done with a period of seeking the Lord where I said, man, I wish I hadn't done that. Because at the end of it, every single time, there's a note of joy and victory and presence of God that shows up in my heart. And I think to myself, man, I thank God. Why don't I seek the Lord more often? Why do I allow distractions and obstacles to get in there? He said, those who seek the Lord, their heart can rejoice because there's a joy that only comes from seeking the Lord. And then he says, seek the Lord and His strength because He knows those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. And then he says, seek His presence continually because he knows that in his presence is fullness of joy and at his right hand there are pleasures forevermore and then he says remember the miracles that he has done because I'm going to tell you something folks I can we can see God do miracles and question that miracle when we see it and he says, you've got to remind yourself of what God has done, the people that he's healed, the, the folks that he's, that he's saved that you never thought would be saved, how he's working and the fact that he doesn't want to quit working. He wants to continue to do more than you could ever imagine. And David's life began, David's life began not in trying to figure out what he could do for God. His life began in what he could do unto God. He said, God, my life is not, I'm not trying to figure out how I can serve and do this in church and get involved and be active and do this and do that and do that. He said, no, my life begins because I'm in a love relationship with you and I want to bring my praise and my worship and my adoration unto you. That's where he started. It wasn't about doing something for God. It was about bringing something unto God, offering a sacrifice to him. He was a seeker of God. And you know, here's the thing. I think in our, in our modern churches we've created, recently there's been a big movement called the seeker-sensitive movement. And to some degree, the seeker-sensitive movement is basically this. It's, hey, let's make church as fun and as comfortable as we can so that unbelievers can come in and enjoy it. And I'll be honest with you, I'm all for that. I like a fun, comfortable atmosphere. So I, t I know I turned the heaters off on you this morning to really test you. And it's not that it's not very seeker sensitive this morning for that because you're a little bit chilly. But 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 I, I understand that idea and I'm all about making church fun and comfortable and nice. But I'm not about the comfortability of people to the degree that we become a church or a body that no longer actually creates seekers of God. If I'm making it comfortable for everybody else, but yet we're not discipling people to become seekers of God in an effort to be seeker-sensitive, then we're missing what the church is designed to be in the first place. Our goal is to not to get as many people as we possibly can to come in and just remain the same way that they are because they're comfortable being here. Our goal is to be so set aflame by the fire of God that when people come in, their comfortability is set aside because they realize God is in this room. And even if I ain't got coffee and even if it's 55 degrees, I'd rather be here because the Lord is in this place. Amen. There we go. Now I'm preaching, right? So here's the thing, 
I, I, I love, we, we want to do things to reach out to people and make things comfortable. But more than making a good program and a good setting and making everything as comfortable as possible, we want people on fire for God that become seekers of the Lord. But see, when you look at David's life and you look at Saul's life, God contrasts them very specifically. Saul was the first king in Israel and David came directly after Saul. And David was a seeker, but Saul was a secular man. And I, you know, this word gets thrown around sometimes, and I've even heard some people preach at the word secular mockingly, but secularism is actually a philosophy in our world today. Matter of fact, I saw a lot of people posting something about, about uh, they've been sharing this post on Facebook about how they're having a, a little satanic club down in Tennessee. And, and here's the thing, uh, you know, now half, half of Satanists actually do worship Satan and they pr practice rituals and they invoke demons, okay? Uh, Luciferianists and different things. And then the other half are people who basically what they actually believe in is secularism. They, they use Satan as a symbol to say we're non-conformists. We want to do what we want to do and we don't want religious pressures. We don't want you telling us how we should live our sex life. We don't want you telling us the commandments that we should obey. We want to live as we want to live and that in essence essence is secularism it's saying of this world only we don't want to think about spirituality we don't want to think about heaven we don't want to think about the command of God we want to think about what we can touch feel taste smell and, and ex experience in the here and now and follow whatever our hearts desire you know the, the one the one actual law of Satanism Aleister Crowley came up with right is do what thou wilt that's secularism at its core you do what you want to do you do you, boo, right? That, that's what it is. And, and that, that's what secularism is. But here's the thing. When we think about that word, obviously we think about these things. We think about, okay, gender ideology and the sexual revolution. Well, that's secularism. We think about, well, there's anxiety and rebellion among teens. Well, that's because they pushed God out of schools. That's secularism causing that. Well, there's, there's bias in the media. and there's, there's, It's because there's, there's secularism causing that. But here's what I found in the church is that we don't realize it, but secularism bleeds into the people of God very slowly and very subtly now secularism doesn't force you men sometimes to look at porn and secularism doesn't necessarily force you to to leave your family or secularism doesn't necessarily cause you to deconstruct your faith it's way more subtle than that and number one the first thing that secularism actually does is it disciples you to learn to live a life without God number one Secularism disciples a man to learn to live without God. And so, one guy said it like this, James K.A. Smith. He said, secularism is a way of constructing meaning and significance without any reference to the divine or the transcendent. Now, you know, here's the thing. Even in church, what happens is, we can, have, we can construct a lot of meaning around church. We can make church something where you come and you get a few pro tips and you know you get like five practical points on how to be a better parent or, or something like, let me tell you something, you can get self-help in the world. There are pr plenty of great books on how to become a better person. You can read philosophies and practices in the world that will actually help you in a variety of areas. The distinction about the Christian life is not that we give you a bunch of pro tips on how to be a better person. The distinctive of a Christian is that they are worshipers of a living God who indwells them by the power of the Holy Spirit to live a different life and to be utterly transformed and carry the glory of God in the midst of a broken world. It 
It means that when they walk in on demons, they have the authority to cast them out. Amen. There's something that you, you can get all the self-help you want, but if Jesus doesn't live in you, you don't have power over demons. There's something different about this. And we recognize that there, there, there's a reality in this world. It's not just about self-help. But see, secularism disciples a man to learn to live without God. And I'll say this, number two, secularism is doing a reverse exorcism. You say, well, what do you mean by that? When Jesus encountered the demonic, what did he do? He cast the demonic out. Secularism is Satan's way of casting Christ out. This is what he uses. He uses it to say, hey, we don't want you, your religion. Y'all stay in the building. Don't bring it to school. Don't bring it around the children. We're trying to make sure that we keep your relationship with Jesus private. Do not make it public. They're trying to cast every... That secularism seeks to cast Christ out of education, out of politics, out of sexuality, out of every single dimension of our lives. It is a reverse exorcism. And here's what I'll say. Godlessness in our world today... Now you might say, well see, all these sins people are committing, that's, that's godlessness. And it is. But I think godlessness in our modern age is not characterized so much by a particular sin, but it's really about building an identity and a reality without reference to God. Secularism, number three, is viewing the self as sovereign and the life as a blank canvas for authentic expression. And I think sometimes we can even do this as Christians. We can say, Jesus, I would like to use you to paint my own canvas as I choose what I want to do in my life. Would you help me do what I want to do in my life? And, and, and Jesus comes and he says, no, you must deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me and allow me to do what I want to do with your life. And in that, if you will lose your life, then you will actually find it. But if you try to keep it and maintain it and be self-expressive and authentic to yourself, no, he said, you've got to die to yourself, my friend. Let it go and let Jesus take full control of this life that we have. And he says, but no. See, a lot of people are identifying in that way. Number four, secularism breeds a carnal Christianity that, number one, rejects the supernatural worldview and the power of God. Slowly but surely what happens is even in churches who say they believe in God, what happens is secularism bleeds into the church culture so that they no longer believe in a supernatural worldview. They don't believe in spiritual warfare. They don't believe that God is still a miracle worker. They don't believe that God actually saves souls. They just think that people sort of get better and change and try to do better. But no, God is still at work doing the supernatural in the human heart. Secularism breeds a carnal Christianity that relies on self or man's wisdom more than God. And can I tell you this, folks? What secularism is causing is now when the powers of darkness bring fear or destruction on the earth and we face situations where we say, man, we don't know what to do. You know what happens? Man's wisdom comes out of the closet and says, here's what you've got to do. And we all go running because we trust man more than we trust God. The last one is it's blind to the need to seek God. And this is like Saul, for example. He's a secular man. He knows about God. He'll even offer a sacrifice to God on occasion. But what you never see Saul actually doing is seeking God. When he goes to war, he don't say, God, what do you think? Every now and then, maybe for an act of decorum, he'll offer up a sacrifice. And I think a lot of times we're tempted to live our lives that way, are we not? It's like, you know what, I'll go to church because I want the Lord to like see that I'm involved and, and all that. Maybe he'll bless something, but as far as seeking him, I don't know if that's actually necessary. 
I don't know if I need to actually go after God for what he wants to do with my life, but how can a man push back against this secular formation that the world is trying to inundate us with? I mean, just think about it. Consider it. Consider how much time you spend on your phone. Consider how much time you spend watching Netflix or how much time you look at other apps or whatever. And consider how much of that time has any Jesus in it whatsoever. It's completely cut off from it. And it's forming you and you don't know it. And it's forming in you into a mindset like Saul, where you say, well, we, could, we don't necessarily need God like that. But if you remember in the book of 1 Samuel, Samuel, Israel's going through a difficult time, right? In the book of Judges, man, you'd have them, they would be worshiping false gods. They'd come up under the oppression of like the Philistines or some other uh, nation around them. And then God would raise up a deliverer because they'd cry out. And God would raise up a judge and he'd set them free. But every time they got set free, they'd go straight back to worshiping false gods. And at that particular time, man, there was no prophetic revelation. There was no prophet. There was no judge and then Hannah had this boy Samuel and dedicated him to the Lord God raises up Samuel and Samuel starts to hear the voice of the Lord and he starts to judge Israel and give them direction but the problem with Samuel is is he doesn't disciple anybody else his sons go wayward and so because of his failed discipleship he's the only dude left and they recognize Samuel your sons man you ain't raising them to live like you live they're living ungodly lives and we well, you're about to die dude and then what are we going to do give us a king like the rest of the nations have and of course that isn't what God wanted he didn't want a king in place what he wanted ultimately was he wanted to be able to rule himself as king over Israel he wanted to give them direction, but they didn't raise up prophets, and so they said, give us a king. They end up giving them Saul. And the Spirit of God comes on Saul, and he becomes another man. But here's the thing. Saul becomes another man, even though the Spirit of God comes upon him. But in practice, he lives without any reference to the presence of God, to the power of God. And it's interesting because he's willing to go to war and build his kingdom without the presence of God. And God ends up saying, you know what, Saul, I've rejected you. And I found another man that is after my own heart. I hope you all know the story. In 1 Samuel 13, it says this, But now your kingdom will not endure because Saul rebelled against the Lord. He wasn't seeking his presence, wasn't obeying his commands. He says, Your kingdom will not endure, Saul. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of this people because you have not kept the Lord's command. And here's what I love about this. Up to this point in Scripture, David's name is not even mentioned. David is not known at this point by man, but God knows him in the Spirit. I want you to consider this because this is so essential. Everybody wants to get the cart before the horse in the kingdom of God. People want a platform. They want to be known by man. They want to be applauded by, by people. They want to be applauded by a pastor. They want to be applauded by somebody. They want a platform, but they don't want the private place with God. See, David is known by God before he's even mentioned in Scripture. He said, I've sought out a man after my own heart, and I know where he's at. He's somewhere in the secret place with God. This is why Matthew 6, 6 says, but you, when you pray... Go into your room, and when you've shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And what David's life teaches us is that you can live a hidden life that moves God. 
Your life in public is not, not, not necessarily as important as your life in private because what happens is your life in private with God is what produces power in your life in public. Do you remember David? When David comes out as about a 15 or 16-year-old boy and everybody is scared to death because a giant is standing on the other mountain defying the armies of the living God. Every man, grown man, is scared to death. David at that point, just a young boy, he shows up and he tells Saul, he says, you know what, Saul, here's the thing. I'll go up against this man without your armor. I'll take a sling and a stone. And here's why I know. Because when nobody else was around in the secret place, a lion and a bear came out against me. But I was praising God and I was worshiping God. And I knew him to the degree that I knew in the name of the Lord he would give me that lion and he'd give me that bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine is just going to be like that lion and just like that bear. Because I've been in the secret place with God when nobody else was looking and so because God gave me the power in the private now he's going to give me victory in the public and see there's a shift that takes place when a man truly understands this Jesus was trying to teach this he says you need to first form your inner life before you form your public or outer life we want to exchange whispers with God that create wakes in the people around us there's a hidden prayer life. Your, your spiritual life, trust me, is not what people see in public. Your spiritual life is what God sees in private. Amen. That's, I'm preaching good this morning. Do we want to, I want you to ask yourself this question. Do I want to be known by men and women as a godly person or do I want to be known in the throne room of heaven? I believe there's people that you don't know nothing about them. They can't sing a song, couldn't preach a sermon. But when they show up in a room, demons know them. And there's people that can preach the pain off the walls. But when demons show up in the room, they just sort of giggle. You understand what I'm saying? There are people who have power in the private, but in public, it's just a show. It's just an external thing because they're missing what they had. See, on the outside, everybody looked at Saul and said, Man, he's head and shoulders above everybody else. Surely this is the Lord's anointing. He's beautiful. He's strong. He's tall. Surely that's the Lord's anointing. They were looking externally. See, I believe God is in the secret place. But here's the thing. If we really believe, he says, go and pray to your father who is in the secret place. You say, well, I believe that. I believe God's in the secret place. Well, you know, I once believed there was a birthday party at Chuck E. Cheese's, and I went there. If I believe that there's something somewhere, I go to it. You understand what I'm saying? If you actually believe the Father is in the secret place, you will go to the secret place to find the Father and hear His whisper and receive His power and receive transformation in your life. He says you've got to go and sometimes you've got to shut the door on some things. And I think the greatest tragedy of Christianity in our day oftentimes is the sin of neglect. We miss the most simple things like praying to God in the secret place because we're focused on all of the externals. Amen. William Wilberforce said it like this. He said, of all things, guard against neglecting God in the secret place of prayer. There's a lot of things that you could probably get by with neglecting. I guarantee you if you neglected TikTok for a little while, you would still be okay. I guarantee you that if you even didn't brush your teeth for a week, you'd still be all right. 
But if you neglect God in the secret place of prayer, your spiritual life will erode day after day after day until you're so lukewarm that you are numb to God and you don't know how in the world you got there. And all of a sudden, depression is swallowing you up. You're angrier than you used to be. You're making terrible decisions. Addictions are coming back in on your life that you used to have and that you thought you fought against because you have neglected the secret place of prayer. The reason why people have secret lives of sin is because they've lost their secret life of prayer. Amen. Behind every legitimate, powerful, spiritual life is a secret life of prayer. And this is difficult to understand. It's difficult to pick up on and, and, and apply to our lives because, like I said, we're very pragmatic. Just give me a few helpful tips this morning, Clay. And if you give me a good tip, I'll be a better husband. I'll be a better father. I'll be a better this. I'll be a better that. No, 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 no. You, the one tip you need is to get in the secret place with God. you got to learn to develop, develop that hidden life. David was in that secret place, and I love David in that secret place. He's in an obscure place alone as a little boy. As a matter of fact, when Samuel comes to anoint David, you all know the story, right? His other brothers, his eight brothers are hanging out at the house, and he says, here, here you are, here's, here's the eight boys. David's out in the shepherding the sheep in the middle of nowhere, and they don't even think to invite him in. They're like, it couldn't be David. And he says, no, the Lord's anointed is not before me. So they call David in, and of course, they end up anointing him. But I want you to consider David as a little boy out there shepherding the sheep. That man never thought he would sing one song to a big crowd. His songs have went out throughout the world. That boy out there in the lonely wilderness, he never dreamt one day he'd kill Goliath, and they'd sing songs about him in public, and he would take the kingship. There was one thing. He was alone in the wilderness, probably broken, probably afraid, probably scared. But he had a harp, and he would play his songs unto God, and he learned to know God through worship of God. He would say, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the day. Of, the, of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and as he's singing and worshiping the Lord he's getting to know the Lord in the secret place he's got no goals in life he's just taking care of sheep he loves the Lord with no agenda he's pursuing God because all he wants is God that's all he desires. He doesn't have another desire he's not trying to pursue God so that maybe God will help him grow a church amen He's not pursuing God for any other reason. It's because he loves the Lord and his heart is pure and he's got that sling, man. And I think about that sling being the word of God and he's learning to sling them stones, man, whenever an enemy would come out against him and he's developing his life in the word of God. And Matter of fact, the word of God is beginning to pour through him. And I read this as we started, but Psalm 27, 4, he said, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. He said, one thing that I've desired of the Lord. Not a bunch of things, but one thing that I've desired of the Lord. Psalm 1611, these are some of my favorites that he said. He said, you will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He's saying, you know what, I've had some joy, I've had some pleasure in this world, but really where real joy comes from is in your presence. And where real pleasure comes from is at your right hand when I'm in that presence. Psalm 17, 15, he says, Deliver me, Lord, from the men of this world who have their portion in this life. He says, As for me, 
I will see your face in righteousness and I'll be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. He says satisfaction is not going to come from what other men are looking at who have their portion in this life. Satisfaction for me, Lord, is going to come when I wake up one morning and I start to look more and more like you. I'm starting to become more and more like you. Psalm 61, 1 through 3, O God, you are my God, early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. I've looked for you in the sanctuary. See your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. See, this is the, this is the heart that David was stirring up. He, he was a seeker of God and he desired God. And I love what it says because whenever they came to him, Samuel said, Do not look on his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused Saul. For the Lord does not see it as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. And here's what I want you to understand. God looks on the outward. He doesn't look on the outward appearance like man. He looks on the heart. Now when he looked on David's heart, what he didn't see was a sinless heart. Y'all know that David blew it several times. David messed up. He made major mistakes. He was repentant when he made those mistakes. When God looked on David's heart, it wasn't that he saw a sinless and perfect heart. When God looked on David's heart, he saw a heart that desired God more than the things of this world. He saw a heart that wanted to seek after God. He's a man after my own heart. It's not a man that yet has my own heart or lives just like me or is flawless, but he wants my heart. He wants to know me, and I found a man above everybody else in the land that the one thing that he desires is to know me. The one thing that he desires is to seek me, and this, therefore he says, the Spirit of the Lord will come upon him and anoints him as king. See, the secret place, I'm telling you, is the secret sauce. David made this statement. If you remember, David ends up, it takes years for David to actually become king after he's anointed. Because here's the thing, God wants to develop you so much that he wants to make sure that you're willing to go through the process in the secret place of developing your relationship with him before he'll ever exalt you into a position where you lead others. Right? So David makes this statement as soon as he became king and was establishing his kingdom, First Chronicles 13.3, and this is the whole gist of the sermon here. Then let us bring again the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. Years go by, Saul ends up being killed, he dies off. Then David is coming into power. And it's so interesting, because the thing about Saul is, is he knew that that ark of the covenant was on the outskirts of Israel, setting in a guy named Abinadab's house for 20 years. It's, it would basically be, be like saying this. It would basically be like coming to church for 20 years, knowing God's not there, knowing nobody's hungry for Him, saying God's presence isn't important. We shouldn't even worship God. Let's just sit here and go through the motions for 20 years because we're not really interested in God's presence. He let the Ark of the Covenant sit on the outskirts, and he made all of his decisions without the presence of God. And he knew it was there for 20 years, and he let it happen. And David starts and he comes in as king and he says, you know what, boys, I could do a lot of things. I got all power now. We could go to war against anybody. I could do like Saul and I could get a bunch of women and bring the harlots to me and I could get your men and start to help, help uh, grow my crops and do all these things. But the thing that I must do first with my power is get the Ark of the Covenant back. He says, the first thing that we're going to do since I'm in power now is we're going to get the Ark of the Covenant because we did not inquire of it in the days of Saul. 
Now, why is the Ark of the Covenant important? Because the whole point of having the Ark of the Covenant is so that God's presence would be among his people. If you remember in the Old Covenant, when, when Moses is moving into the wilderness, they build the tabernacle, they set it up, and it's portable. And if you remember, the Ark of the Covenant was the place where God's glory dwelt, and there would be a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud by day. And when that thing would move, they would move with it over the Ark of the Covenant. They would take it up, the Levites would carry it, and they would follow the glory of God. And that's how they knew it's a spirit-led life moving around the presence of God. We go where the presence goes. And then they're going into the promised land, and they rebel against God, and God says, you know what, I'm not going to go with you. You know what Moses says? He says, God, if your presence doesn't go with us, then we're not going up. If the Ark of the Covenant and your glory doesn't go, then we're not going because the one thing that distinguishes us is not that we eat different foods. It's not that we wear different clothes. It's, it's not that we have different restrictions or anything like that or that we're circumcised. The one thing that makes us different from every other person is that your presence is with us. And that's the one thing that we don't ever want to lose. And see, this became the heart of the people of Israel. Their, their life was centered around the Ark of the Covenant because it represented the presence of Jesus Christ. And so they, they still have the Ark of the Covenant. And when you come into 1 Samuel, if you remember, they're sort of warring over the Ark of the Covenant. And the Philistines come and they steal the Ark of the Covenant. And I love it because they take it and they put the Ark of the Covenant represented, representative of Jesus and the power of God, the presence of Christ. They set it in their temple of Dagon, which is a false demonic fish god. And you know what happens when they set it in the presence of Dagon? They come back into the temple the next day. Dagon is falling on his face flat and his arms broken off. Well, they set Dagon back up. They said, we can't have our God falling down. we got to set our God back up. This isn't any good. And so they set him back up. The next day they come in, he's falling on his face again in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant, and his head is broke off. In other words, let me tell you this. When you bring your idols into the presence of God, and you keep bringing them, before long they're going to lose their power, and they're going to break under the weight of the presence of God. So we keep coming into the presence of God. The reason I got set free from all of my addictions is because no matter how bad I struggled, I kept going in around the presence of God until finally those things broke off of my life. False gods and bondages cannot stand in the presence of God long term. And so they said, boys, this ain't working out for us. Now we're breaking out in boils. Maybe we should take the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel. And they seek their gods, and their gods tell them, you know what, you do. You need to get rid of this Ark of the Covenant. Why? Because demons hate the presence of God. Give it back to them, boys. Get it out of town. They bring it back. It comes to Abinadab's house where it sets for 20 years, and Saul doesn't inquire of it once. Imagine that. Imagine living your Christian life for 20 years, and I'm going to bet that many people have where they've been Christians for 20 years, they've been in the kingdom for 20 years, but they have never inquired of the presence of God. And said, Lord, we want to build our life around you. We want you to come into sin. They, they were content to leave it on the outskirts. Content to go with a, a form of religion, but deny the power of God in their midst. And so the first thing that he does, David says, no, nah, we ain't going to live like we did in the days of Saul. We're going to bring the presence of God back into this place. And here's, here's one of the issues. Just like I said, I think the church has a, a fleshly pull toward pragmatism and program and not presence. We even will go to churches based on, well, how, how good is the kids' church program? You know, and here's the thing. We want to have good kids' church. Why? Because we want kids to come. We want to have good Sunday morning services because we want families to come. 
But my question is, do we actually want to pray? And if we don't, we got to ask ourselves the question, do we want God to come? We may want families to come, we may want kids to come and have a good time, but if we don't want God to come, we cease to be what the church of God is designed to be. Those who host the living presence and power of God in their midst. I think about last year, you remember when they had the revival at Asbury last year? How many of y'all you went to that actually? Uh, a couple of people went, a couple of people went, praise God. See, we've got a couple of seekers in here. Anyway, uh, so when they went to Asbury, at Asbury, it was a bad chapel service. You know what I'm saying? They didn't even have lyrics on the screen, y'all. Wasn't no coffee out front. Matter of fact, you had to wait outside some. You know what I mean? But the point is, is none of those things mattered. Why? It does, they didn't have, the, the music wasn't that good. There wasn't any great preaching. They didn't have a scheduled revival lineup. What did they have? The presence of the living God. And people came from all over the world. Why? Because there was somebody in there seeking God. There was somebody in there saying, God, we need you to show up. And something moved the heart of God. And he said, I'm going to show up. And then hungry seekers all over the world said, we're going to go to that place. Why? Because the Ark of the Covenant is in the center. Jesus is in the center. People are calling upon the name of the Lord. And the Lord's showing up because he's found a place where he can settle into. Where he can settle into. See, but the challenge is, David's zeal for the presence is not enough to bring the presence in. I want the presence of God to show up, but he doesn't always show up the way that I would like him to show up. My zeal isn't enough. David's zeal wasn't enough. David shows up. He comes in this place. and See, here's what I, here's what I want to say, though, before I get into this, because the God, God is a God of revival. He wants to restore his presence. And number one, what he'll do is God will raise a generation that desires the presence. And I believe that he's stirring people all over the world to say, you know what, God, what we want more than anything is your presence in our lives. We want something real. We want something genuine. I don't want a concert that I can get by going to see Rolling Stones. I don't just want music. I don't want a good TED talk that the preacher brings. I want to show up, and yes, we want music, but we want it to have the power and presence of God. By I want a sermon, but I want the fire of God to burn on the Word. And I want when we gather together, there's a tangible sense of the living God in our midst. And he's raising up a people that say, that's what we want, God. We want the presence of God in our midst. And if you remember... They're bringing the Ark of the Covenant. David says, let's go get it. And they go get it out of Abinadab's house. They're bringing it back in, but they're carrying it on an ox cart. The problem with that is it's supposed to be carried by Levites. They're not obeying the holiness and the commands of God. So they bring it in, and it starts to tip and tumble. And a guy named Uzzah reaches out, touches it, tries to help out the presence of God. Let me, let me help contain you here, presence of God. And when he touches it, God strikes him dead. He said, well, that's, that's rough, man. I don't know about that. David hated it. David got angry. He got upset. He went home, and he's, he's, he's grieving for a, a time over what's going on. And they leave the Ark of the Covenant in a guy's house named Obed-Edom. And it's at Obed-Edom's house for a few weeks. And all of a sudden, they come back to David. They say, man, Obed-Edom is blessed right now. He's got the Ark of the Covenant in his yard. Dude is blessed. He's experiencing the presence of God over there. We've still got to go back and get it back. And so David goes back with all of these people. And he says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take the Levites. We're going to carry it the way that we're supposed to carry it. We're going to do what we're supposed to do. And they're carrying it. Now get this, every six steps that he takes, on the sixth step, he stops and he makes a sacrifice. Now they say, 
Scholars say that he would have had to have made 3,500 sacrifices to get from Obed-Edom's house back to Jerusalem with the Ark of the Covenant. About 3,500 if you take six steps and you make a sacrifice. Now six is the number of man. It's the number of flesh. It's that number that says, now everybody can feel me on this because when we talk about seeking God, you know in your flesh you've got so much resistance and you, you know about your weaknesses and your struggles and your sins. And what he's saying is, Lord, I realize now that we don't understand your holiness, we don't understand your purity, and we recognize our deep need, God, that without you, we're not going to get anything done. So every step which is the number of man and man's frailty he stops and on the seventh one he does a sacrifice now that's a picture of the ultimate sacrifice of Christ because seven is the number of perfection and he saw that one day there was going to be a perfect sacrifice that comes that no longer would you have to fear touching the presence of God because of that perfect sacrifice you would have free access into the presence of God forever freely and he saw the beauty of that but he still understood something he understood that the presence of God was not going to be ushered in without a sacrifice now Jesus has made the ultimate sacrifice but can I tell you this on a daily basis because Jesus has made the ultimate sacrifice for us he still tells us that we ought to offer him the sacrifice of our praise and of our worship and give him the sacrifice of our very bodies and our lives and as we do he says then I can begin to usher the presence of God into this place and every sixth step they would take and they would alter themselves so to speak and say Lord without you showing up in humility we're coming before you without you showing up it's not going to be not going to happen and number two see this this generation realizes the fear of the lord and holiness it's not just human excitement and zeal for the presence but it's hosting the presence of god and the presence of god requires a level of consecration of fear of the lord and a pursuit of holiness i don't know that one can host the presence of god without a willingness to truly repent from their sin I don't know that a church can truly host the presence of God without a willingness to consecrate themselves. This is why we, 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 we talk about these things and we say, look, look, we're going to pray and we're going to fast. You got, you got some sin in your life? Let, let's, let's, get it. let's turn this over to the Lord and ask Him to set us free from that. Why? Because we want God to show up in our midst. We want Him to be here in power. But see, you can't treat God as common and we can't live in constant compromise. What's interesting is Saul's downfall in 1 Samuel 13, is this. Samuel shows up to Saul and he says, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattered from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I said, The Philistines will now come down to me at Gilgal. And I've not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. Now, this is where God ends up stripping the kingdom from him. You say, well, he just offered a burnt offering. The point was, it wasn't his offering to make. He made a sacrifice that was outside of the boundaries of what he was supposed to do because the people were scattering from him. And I really believe this. I believe that in our generation, there had, look, we've got a generation with the greatest technology in church that we've ever had. In the 1970s, there was a handful of megachurches. Now there are thousands of megachurches all over the place. And some, they can put on a production like you've never seen. We've got good screens. We've got great technology. Our music is better than it's ever been in Christian history, most likely, as far as the production that we put out. But guess what? We are also in the greatest measure of spiritual decline that we've ever been in. Isn't that interesting? 
And, and, it, and when he saw that the people were scattering from him, I think in this generation, because people are seeing that the people are scattering from them, then they start to cross boundaries that they shouldn't be crossing, and they start to manipulate the Word of God a little bit. They start to manipulate their sexual ethic a little bit, and they say, well, let, let, let's change and shift some things, and let's make some compromises, because we're afraid the people will scatter away from us. And Saul says, I saw them scattering away and I, I felt like I needed to do something to keep the people. And what God is saying, no, 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 you need to quit worrying so much about keeping the people happy and start worrying about keeping me happy. He's, he's saying there's, a, there's, a, there's something in your heart. It's not about the people first, it's about me first. And if you start to compromise my ways and you start to compromise my holiness and you're afraid you're going to lose people because they love the world more than they love you, then let them go. Jesus said, guess what? Do not marvel if the world hates you because it hated me first. The one thing we are called to first is to bring glory to God and to worship Him correctly. And then everything else should flow from that. And I'm going to tell you something. When we do that, we won't just see people coming to church. We will see lives transformed. See, we do it God's way. And Saul lost the kingdom because he oversteps his bounds and he doesn't understand holiness and sacrifice. But number three, it's a people that understand that the presence of God is hosted by pursuit and sacrifice. See, he walks six steps. I told you, 3,500 sacrifices that he makes. And here's the point that I'm making is we could have church till kingdom come and have a pretty good church. And people come to church for various reasons. People say, I like the kids' program. Well, my friends go there. Well, the preacher preaches pretty good. Like the, thing, the music's great. Like we say all that. We could have church for a long time. But if we want the presence of God in our midst, it's going to be because we daily make moment-by-moment -moment sacrifices. God does not show up in power just because we decide... When we're going to go to church like we've always went. No, it's when people get hungry enough. And day by day, it's on Tuesday night when you're sitting there watching TV and all of a sudden you make a sacrifice, you turn that sucker off, and you say, I'm going to spend some time with the Lord and His Word. It's on Saturday morning whenever you get up early and, 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 you, and maybe you log in on Zoom there to get on with Richard Jones and say a prayer with, with, with a few handful of the people that are there. It's whenever they call prayer and fasting. You know, it's, it's difficult, but you spend a day praying and fasting and seeking the Lord. And it becomes part of your life where there's 3,500 moments throughout a year where you're stopping to make a sacrifice to God to say, Lord, we want you here. We want you here. And they understand that it's going to take constant sacrificing to honor the Lord. And God wants to bring us in on this process to take us through it to become the kind of people that can carry the presence of God through sacrifice and consecration together. So in the days of David, the ark was at the center. But in the days of Saul, self was at the center. And in the days of David, the presence was restored. But in the days of Saul, the presence was ignored. And in the days of David, worship was prioritized, but in the days of Saul, worship was an accessory. It was something that we might could use just to sort of maybe gain a little favor from the Lord in a moment. But no, for David, it was life. Matter of fact, when David shows up on the scene, he brings the Ark of the Covenant in. Do you remember David had a wife that was actually Saul's daughter? Now get this, because if you're like Saul and you're a Christian person, you're in the kingdom, but you treat worship in the presence of God as if it's peripheral. You're willing to leave it on the outskirts of your home, you're willing to leave it on the outskirts of church. You're willing to not get engaged and truly engaging in the presence and seeking of God. You know what happens? It shows up in your children. 
Because when David comes back in, he's married to one of Saul's daughters. And if you remember, he brings the presence of God back in. The dude is dancing before the Lord with all of his might with a linen ephod on. And she looks at him and she despises him because of his extravagant display of worship. And the spirit of religion in our children, because we rejected the presence of God, will show up and they will despise true worship. But I'm telling you something, folks. I do not want a generation that comes. I want a generation that's more on fire for God than we were. I want some people that said you know what my daddy tapped into the presence of God but I want more than what he had I want to carry the living Christ in my heart and in my body and I want to know who God is and I want his presence in our midst and I want our children to stir it up like that because here's the thing when David got that ark of the covenant he put that thing in a tent he said I don't care if we build a temple or not I want some choirs in here I want some people worshiping the Lord and it never stopped they never stopped worshiping God in that tent for 40 years, 24-7, because of that passion, because of that desire, because of that pursuit. And so when a godless generation builds reality without the presence of God, just like David, it's the next generation's responsibility to restore it. So the most important thing that a person can do is to build their life around the presence of God. You can see all the culture wars, you know, satanic temple is having kids, uh, educating people. You know, here's the thing. What would be way more powerful than you getting aggravated or even making posts on the internet or anything like that about the bad things that are happening in the world? What would be more powerful is if you started reorienting your life around the presence of God. We might wouldn't even have to say near as much if our lives were just oriented around God's presence and power. If we sought the Lord so powerfully that, that, that people around us decided, man, I want to be different. I want, I want to live differently. So I want to close with this. Maintaining pursuit. Let me say this. Number one, we just, if we're going to maintain a pursuit of God, number one, we've got to prioritize our personal time with God in the private place. Prioritize that. Make that the most serious thing in your life. Like, I've got to be alone with God, and I've got to prioritize personal time with Him. Number two, I've got to build a family altar where God is reverenced and loved. Is Jesus the center in our homes? Do our children talk about Jesus? Do we, do we, do we pray together about these things? Are, 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 we, are we praying at night as a family? Is there an altar where God is reverenced and worshipped in the home so that His presence is there? Number three, I've actually got to keep margin in my schedule so life is built around God being too busy for God is not a good excuse I doubt we're going to get into the kingdom of heaven and he'll be like it's okay don't worry about it I saw that you had other things going on I mean I got one giggle out of that y'all went to sleep on me somehow number four remember and celebrate what God has done on your behalf think about God talk about what God's done and not only that, but expect God to do even more. Number, number five, pursue His presence and His holiness. When you come into church on Sunday, be ready to worship. When you're driving your car down the road, say, Lord God, I want you in this car. When, when you're with your family, say, God, I want your presence among my family. Invite him in. And number six, share God with others. If you have that presence, then share Lord, the G, Lord Jesus Christ with others. What do we actually do in our lives to say, God... You are welcome here. I heard one guy say in every service, the Holy Spirit dips his toe in just to check and see if I'm welcome here. Dips his toe in just to see, what if, what if, are they welcoming me here in this place? And so my last, my last little thing to say is just this, this. 
God has stirred my heart over this, and, and it's just like the Lord says to me, Clay, you need to refuse to live in the days of Saul. Don't be content with allowing the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant, to be on the outskirts. Put it in the center. Become a people that will seek God and pursue Him at all costs. Amen? I want you to bow your heads with me. Let's pray together. Lord, we just ask you to move in our hearts again today and every day. Because, Lord God, we need you. And we need hearts to pursue you. We want to have hearts like David. Lord, that are hearts that are after your own heart. And God, in our own flesh, I don't know that we, we don't have the ability to stir this up in our lives. But God, I know that we are desperate for your presence. And I know, God, that you want to move among us. And so I'm just praying that your will would be done in our lives on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, you would stir something in us that would make us desperate for you. That we would do what it takes to reorient our entire lives around your presence and around your power and that Jesus we would seek your face that we would not allow the secularism of this world to push you out of our lives but in, in our workplaces in our homes in this church Lord God in our daily lives that Jesus we would make you the center and we would set our hearts to seek you every single day that we live Holy Spirit I'm trusting that even as we pray Right now, God, that you're doing this in each heart. So, God, we, we thank you for it. Pray that you just stir us to seek you and to worship you as you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want you to stand to your feet. They're going to lead us in worship. And if you need prayer for anything this morning whatsoever, I invite you to come. We'd love to pray for you, whatever it is. If you need a miracle in your life, you need a miracle in your body, your mind, your family members, you want us to intercede with you, we'd love to pray for you. But I'd ask you to respond to the Lord where you're at. Take a moment here to seek the Lord. Take a moment here to pursue the Lord. Take a moment to pray.